Lord, help us to understand the meaning of these words and speak to us this morning that we might hear you. In your precious name, Amen. So this is a, a fairly interesting account of soon after Jesus is reported as risen from the dead and the disciples have locked themselves up in an upper room in fear of the authorities, which was a really sensible response because, as you probably are aware down through history, when the leader of a particular group that is considered to be insurgent or uh, against the authorities gets taken down, often what follows is they round up the followers. They used to do this whenever there were palace coups, all this kind of thing. You see it all the way down through history. When they move against someone, they take out the leader and then they take out the followers. So Jesus' followers were scared. Based on history, they had good reason to be scared. They locked themselves in the upper room and waited for something to happen. What happened was not what they were expecting. Uh, suddenly Jesus appears and says peace to them and you almost get this sense that they're kind of going, first saying a peace is, it's okay, don't be scared, and he shows them his hand and side and then they go, far out, this is amazing, the second peace be with you is calm down, you know, so <laughs> first one is don't be scared, second one is calm down. And Jesus says some remarkable stuff to them. He says that just as he has been sent, so he is sending his disciples. Now they needed to hear this because their vocation was not to huddle in an upper room locked in from fear. And uh, we may never have huddled in fear in a locked upper room, but it's very easy to do the equivalent thereof in our lives where we lock ourselves down and we're fearful and we're scared to go out. We fear that the world out there might not like it, might not like us. How, what will they make of us? What will they do to us? And there's a fear that can be as part of that. But we have a task, we have a role, we have a purpose. We are to live and share the love of God in the world. We do this as Jesus modelled it and so we go out and we are with those who are in need. We pray for the poor and help them in practical ways. We cross social boundaries to be with the excluded. We stand with those who are being scapegoated. We model another set of values and priorities and desires, ones that are not commonly seen in our everyday world. And it is potentially very dangerous work. Because when you hold a different set of values to the predominant set of values, you become the outlier. You become the one that is easily excluded and scapegoated. But Jesus was calling them to come alive out of their fear and to participate in the ministry that he had been doing up until the time when he was crucified. And... Uh, I can imagine the disciples at that point going, mm, will we do that, won't we do that, that's a bit intimidating. I don't know, how do you feel about that call? You ready to go out and do all that kind of ministry? So in the midst of that intimidating call from Jesus and at that moment where they would have been frightened, Jesus does this really odd thing. I don't know if you've ever had anybody do this to you, but he breathes on them. 
And normally we associate that with inappropriate behaviour, don't we? Like someone comes and goes, hi, you go, oh, what did you have for lunch? But this was actually a liturgical gesture because the word for breath and the word for spirit in the Hebrew are in fact the same thing, ruach. It's a beautiful word, isn't it? Ruach. And uh, he was liturgically pouring the spirit onto them. He's trying to say to them, I don't want you to do this work in the same spirit that everybody else does their work. There's a different spirit. My spirit. See, the spirit of the world is motivated by fear and seeks to control. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. So many things that happen in our life and in our world, motivated, motivated by fear seeking control to provide security, all those sorts of things are the world spirit. By contrast, Jesus' spirit is motivated by love and seeks to serve. It's profoundly vulnerable, kind of edgy and dangerous in a way. The world spirit is about self-protection, survival, Jesus' spirit is about self-giving and fullness of life. Very different spirits. And that's why Jesus said, don't just go out and do it the world's way. Receive my spirit. Do it in the way that I do it. And then he says something even more remarkable, in fact, pretty much impossible to believe at some level, He says, if you forgive sins, the sins are forgiven, and if you retain them, they are retained. Wait a minute. Do we really have that kind of power and authority? It's a funny thing, but for many, many people, the closest they get to God, certainly in the first instance, is to meet one of God's followers, one of Jesus' followers. That's how we encounter the story. That's how we get opened up to the possibility that there might be God. I remember when I was first converted in a church way back a long time ago and for me the leaders in that church really were like God. Now they didn't try to be like that but they had delivered to me a message that had so transformed my life that from then on everything that they said had a huge impact on me. And if they said it was okay to do that, I knew it was okay to do that. If they sort of looked scant at doing that, I wouldn't go near it. They didn't even know probably how powerful they were. And when someone has that kind of relationship with another, if you forgive their sin, they experience the forgiveness. And if you don't, they experience the unforgiveness. And it's tangible and powerful and we have that kind of impact on each other. The way we forgive or the way we withhold forgiveness changes in the material world, in real lifetime relationships, our experience of life. And Jesus got that. If you forgive a person's sin, their sins are forgiven. And if you don't, they experience that as well. Incredible responsibility and power and privilege to be the representatives of God in our relationships.
Now, then there's the little episode with Thomas. Poor old Thomas. You know about Thomas, don't you? Most of us know about him as Doubting Thomas. Poor guy, slips up once and gets called Doubting Thomas. This episode with Thomas, I think, is very instructive because it teaches us about who we trust and who we should trust, in a way. Because... Thomas wasn't there when Jesus showed up and he, he comes back, he's got his fish and chips and come home and he's eaten and everyone's going, oh, we saw the Lord, we saw He's going, oh, come on, Jesus got crucified, we all know that. No, he was here, don't give me that. Why did Thomas not believe his friends? Well, the immediate thing that came to mind was his friends all seemed to get it wrong before. They followed Jesus thinking he was going to be the Messiah who was going to bring the great deliverance and Jesus ends up hanging on a cross. Got it wrong. So they start saying, we've seen the Lord. Oh yeah, that was just like when you said he was going to bring salvation, yada, yada, you know. Why should I believe you? Why should I? And it's interesting to think about who do we believe? Where do our beliefs come from? And why do we trust those people in particular? We often think we reason out our beliefs and that uh, we weigh things up very carefully and we make decisions and we're so wise and impartial and most of the times that's a load of nonsense. We mostly believe the stuff that people we trust tell us. Where, where do you get your basic principles from? From people you trust. Mostly from our primary caregivers. They kept us alive so they've got to be worth trusting. And we don't think about who we trust and who we don't trust. And the challenge, of course, is that sometimes we trust the wrong people and we suffer profound disappointment. I can imagine at the moment as the Royal Commission on uh, Child Abuse goes through so many different institutions and including the church and people wondering at this institution that's supposed to represent God and the kinds of evils that went on in the midst of it. You've got to be careful who you trust, don't you? It's not, a, it's not a straightforward thing. And Thomas was not going to trust those who led him to expect something that didn't occur previously. Why should I trust you? Luckily for Thomas, Jesus shows up again. And there's something about this that I think is instructive as well. Go to the source. I mean, in the first instance, we usually encounter the gospel through a person who shares it with us. But then get closer to the source. Read the documents. Read the stories. Listen to the scriptures. Encounter Christ. Don't just trust his representatives. They probably will let you down at some point, somewhere it's very difficult to find anyone who's perfect. I'm just putting that out there. It's particularly as a minister, sometimes people think ministers are perfect. They're not, let me tell you. And if you doubt that, ask my wife. Um, we have to continually turn to Jesus. And this can be a little bit uh, tricky because sometimes we're even persuaded that Jesus promised things that he never promised. We can think that the story of the gospel offers us things that it doesn't offer us. But if you keep persevering, if you keep going deeper into that relationship, that will be where you'll find someone you can trust more deeply than anyone else you've ever trusted.
So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Thomas, when he's confronted with the risen Jesus, says, my Lord and my God. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't bat an eyelid about that. He says, you're blessed and so will other people be more blessed if they believe in me without seeing that. This is one of the few times Jesus openly accepts a claim as God. All through the scripture, all through the gospel accounts, he's really cagey about this. There's almost a sense in which it was absolutely vital that that information didn't come out too clearly too soon. The events had to take place and then it would become apparent. And this is one of those moments where Thomas declares, my Lord and my God, and it's as if Jesus says, you're blessed because you, you know that. And other people will come to know that too. And John at the end of this little episode is saying some things along the lines of, there's so much stuff I could have put in this account, so many amazing things that Jesus did and I've just cherry-picked them so that there's enough here that you can believe that he is who he says he is. You can get a picture of who this guy is. And I, I read that and I think, yeah, he must have done so much amazing stuff. And initially when I first became a Christian, I was really blown out by the healing stories. You know, People with leprosy being healed, those who couldn't walk being given the strength to walk again. And even that moment when Lazarus is brought back from the dead, I mean, imagine being able to do that kind of stuff in the hospitals today. That'd be pretty handy, wouldn't it? As I've persevered, the more amazing stuff to me is the way Jesus relates to people, the way he crosses cultural boundaries and understands the deepest needs of the other person. That is a miracle so profound. When he sees the woman who's suffering from a hemorrhage and who is so socially isolated, not just physically unwell but socially isolated, he responds to every part of her need, allowing her to be identified as someone that he has come in contact with and healed so that she's not just healed physically but she can be healed socially as well. He understands that stuff. It's so, so profound. So good. The way he spoke with the tax gatherers, sorry, tax gatherers and people who had found themselves in a position where they were making very good money but hated by all their countrymen. And Jesus responded to those people in a way that set them free from their self-loathing and from their oppressive behaviour and so forth. He did amazing stuff. And John says that he's written all of this so that you might, ha- might have life in his name. So it's a beautiful declaration and again, when I first heard that, I thought it was about getting uh, some reservation tickets in his name for heaven. You know that I, you go to the box office and uh, what name, sir? Uh, Jesus, I've got two in the name of Jesus. Thank you, come in this way. And there was this sense in which you could secure your place in eternity in his name. But I've thought more about that lately and that may or may not be true, although I don't think they'll have a concierge in heaven, who knows. Um, But life in his name is about believing that the way Jesus did life is the way in which life is to be had. 
in his name, in that way. Here is the model of the way to behave and live and if you do it in that way, you will find a deeper, richer, more connected, more compelling, more life-giving life than any other way. It's like recognising that we don't get life by doing it... I'm going to be a bit controversial. So, doing life in Rupert Murdoch's name. So, he has a particular way of doing life, a particular set of values, a particular way... Now, we could pick some other people. Prince Charles, Eddie O'B. You could pick any number of people and say, to do it in their name, to do it in their way, the way they've modelled life and the the values and the priorities and the desires, the way they did their relationships, does that give you the richest possible life? In the name of Jesus, in the way that he does life, therein is life, life like you've never known it before. You see, when Jesus shows up in the locked upper room, everything changes for the disciples. They move from being a frightened bunch of persecuted minority types and we'll celebrate Pentecost in a couple of weeks and we'll see the transformation when the the Spirit does come upon them and they spill out and suddenly they are empowered to do life in Jesus' name. And the world has not been the same since. Now you might say there's good bits about that and bad bits about that, but when we do it in Jesus' name, when we do it like him, that's humble, that's service. It's not domination, it's not persecution, it's not manipulation, it's not abuse. It's love and service and healing and empowering. Life in his name. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you that you came and lived and died and rose and you appeared to the disciples in their locked room and you continue to meet us. We thank you that you invite us to be the representatives of your Father just as you were on this earth and to do life and find life in your name. Empower us by your Spirit. We want to feel your breath upon us and in us that we might be your people in all that we do. In your precious name. Amen.